Christmas according to Exodus. What on earth is Mike thinking? You might be saying to yourself, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The time when we celebrate Jesus' birth and Mike is preaching from the Old Testament. Why preach from Exodus the Sunday before Christmas? Well, it's, it's my conviction that the Bible is a great story. Indeed, it is the greatest story ever written and told. It is not merely the greatest story ever told because it is so well written, although that is undoubtedly true. It is also not merely the greatest story ever told because in its light, every human being can understand their own life story. It is not merely the greatest story ever told because it helps us to understand why the history of the world has followed the trajectory it has and because it tells us where world history is headed. These truths are undoubtedly part of why the Bible is the greatest story ever told. But ultimately, the Bible is the greatest story ever written and told because it is true and because of the good news that the Bible's story communicates. The story of the Bible is about the one true and living God rescuing and delivering fallen and sinful men from eternal death in hell by sending His one and only most beloved Son to earth. If it is your sense that Jesus coming into the world as a baby, His amazing life, His shocking death, and His even more shocking resurrection from the dead is where the story of the Bible reaches its climax, then you're exactly right. But as you all know, because I'm sure you all read stories, it is the rising tension of the story that helps us to appropriately take in the meaning of the story's climax. So yes, I'm taking us backward to Exodus, and next week back to the book of Judges, so that, Lord willing, we can more fully appreciate what happened with the arrival of the Savior of the world. The truth is that Moses' birth helps us to understand Jesus' birth. And Jesus' birth is what Christmas is all about. Jesus' birth, Christmas, is all about the arrival of promised deliverer and king. Christmas is all about what this deliverer would accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave. However, Jesus' birth, as we read about earlier in the service, was fraught with danger. And I really hope that Matthew 2 reading sticks in your mind as we look at Exodus. He was born into a hostile environment, deadly environment. A ruthless king sought to take his life. How had the world, once so beautifully created in holiness and love and peace, come to be so filled with darkness and danger and death? Moses' birth in the book of Exodus prepares us for this possibility as he was born into a scene and scenario of darkness and danger and death. And by the way, what I, what I just did there is the kind of thing that I'm going to do throughout this sermon. I'm going to draw your attention to something from Exodus and then draw your attention to something in Matthew's Gospel or in the narratives of Jesus' birth. This morning we're going to compare and contrast Jesus' birth and Moses' birth with the hopes of deepening our appreciation of the arrival of God's final deliverer, Jesus Christ. 
So let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find that passage on page 45. 45, page 45. And while you're turning there, let me just briefly set the scene for the opening of the book of Exodus. I mentioned that the Bible is a story. And the way that the second book of the Bible, the way that Exodus opens, makes it profoundly clear that we are continuing the reading, uh, that we are reading the continuation of a story that was begun in Genesis. The name that we know the book by, Exodus, comes from the central event in the book. God's rescuing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The actual Hebrew name of the book is, And These Are the Names which are the opening words of the book, as you can see there in verse 1. That word and reminds us that the story is continuing. Do, do you remember how Matthew begins his true tale of the coming of Christ? Matthew opens his book with a list of names too. Both of the openings of Matthew and Exodus remind us that they are connecting up to a story already in progress. We're going to study Exodus chapter 1, uh, verses, uh, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, under four headings. The multiplication of God's people, that's number one. The affliction of God's people, the preservation of God's people, and the deliverer of God's people. And I'll repeat those points as we continue throughout the sermon, but I think you can find an outline provided there in the bulletin. Let, let's begin with our first point, the multiplication of God's people. And as we do, let's read that list of names. Read Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Exodus, the book of Exodus, is but one portion of a larger history of God's care for the people of Israel. And part of the larger story of his bringing a deliverer into this world. That is what, we, that is what these verses reveal. How? Well, well, who is this family that we read about in the first five verses or so of Exodus? This family is becoming, as they multiply, the nation or people of Israel. And where did they come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God called a pagan man, Abram, to follow him. In that same chapter, God promised Abram that he would make of him a great nation. In faith, Abram followed God. And in Genesis 15, God renewed his promise to Abram. In Genesis 15, God actually tells Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, that he will have a great number of descendants, almost too numerous to count. As Genesis unfolds, we begin to meet the offspring of Abraham, and the book follows his family line. Abraham's wife gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac's wife gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob has these 12 sons that we see listed in verses 2 to 4. What we're seeing in verses 1 through 5 are the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise to make Abraham's offspring into a great nation. And when we think of the opening of Matthew's gospel, we can't be all that surprised to see a long list of names, some of which are even mentioned here in Exodus. 
That long list in Matthew, which includes the names of Jacob and Judah, reminds us of several things. First, that Jesus' birth is connected to this story that we're reading about here in Exodus. It also reminds us that God did indeed give Abraham a great many descendants. And the following verses in Exodus, they do contain joy as they reveal God is keeping His promises, but not without obstacles. Notice that the language of verse 6 sounds something of a happy, uh, sounds something of a transition in the happy multiplication of God's people. There's life and there's death. But as verse 7 begins, it is clear that this obstacle will not hold God back from bringing His promises to pass. Look at verse 7 again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the language that we've heard before in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with their offspring. Here in Exodus, we see the people of Israel taking up that mandate that God gave in the garden and fulfilling it. Many have persuasively argued that Jesus' great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel encourages the fulfillment of that command in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 by making disciples of all nations. We're fruitful in multiplying by making disciples of all nations throughout the whole earth. Well, what can we learn from these verses here in, in Exodus chapter 1? First, we learn that the past is not insignificant. In fact, the past is incredibly significant. God had made past promises to the people of Israel. The past history of the people of Israel tells them who they are. And it also tells them who they will be. From their past, they know that they are a special people, called by God, loved by God, and led by God. From their past, they know that they will be a people who are continually loved by God and led by God. The past for the people of Israel is their great ground of hope. Christian, your past. The past is your great ground of hope too. And and here, I'm not simply talking about what has transpired in your lifetime, though that is significant. And portions of your past may offer glimmers of hope for the future. More specifically, I'm talking about the promises of God made before your birth. The people of Israel here in Exodus 1 are banking on promises made in the past before their births, promises made to Abraham. Similarly, this is what Christians rest all of their hope on. Your hope is based on God's promises to send a son to cancel the record of debt that your sins have incurred. Your hope is based on God having fulfilled that promise too. The point of verses 1 through 7 here in Exodus chapter 1 is that God is bringing about His promises to prosper the children of Abraham, to make them a great nation. And what we learn about God is obvious here in these verses. He is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. We know that to be true in our own lives as Christians too. And this is a great comfort to us. Well, we've considered how God has kept His promises to the people of Israel and how they've multiplied under His care. But in verse 8, we're introduced to a powerful individual who poses a threat to God's promises. Turn with me and and read Exodus chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 14, as we are considering now our second point, the affliction of God's people, the affliction of God's people. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 8 introduces to us the one who threatens to at least curtail, if not reverse, the fulfillment of God's promise to make the children of Abraham into a great nation. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God actually promised Abraham that he would prosper his people and that they would face affliction. Listen to Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This new Pharaoh and king seems to be taking up the role of afflicting the people of God as promised. Pharaoh, we're told, did not know Joseph. While serving a previous king, Joseph had predicted that a seven-year famine would take place. And so he encouraged the Egyptians to, to save and to store food during the plentiful years. When the famine came, the people of Egypt were preserved because of God's work through Joseph. In fact, God's work through Joseph in part made Egypt the great and powerful nation that it was. People from all over came to Egypt and purchased food from them thereby expanding the riches of Egypt. But this new Pharaoh might not know this history. But it's equally likely, if not more likely, that this new Pharaoh chose to ignore this history. He may have willfully chosen not to remember and know how God dealt kindly with Egypt through Joseph and the people of Israel. Notice Pharaoh's concern in verses 9 and 10 is that the people of Israel, they are too many and too mighty. Part of Pharaoh's concern seems to be that of a, a military threat. He's concerned that the people of Israel may actually turn against Egypt and destroy the prominence and power that Egypt had in the world. Prominence and power which God had given them. Pharaoh's fear of man, because he's afraid of the people of Israel. Pharaoh's fear of man is deep and deadly. And as the New Testament opens, the birth of Jesus takes place in a strikingly similar context to that of Moses' birth. While the people of Israel were not technically enslaved by the Romans at the time of Jesus' birth, what is not in doubt is that they were under strenuous economic oppression from the Roman government. Rome st stationed soldiers throughout the land and ruled with an iron fist. Herod was a brilliant but brutal ruler. He and his other Roman rulers had frequently squashed messianic movements and pretenders. 
And what is most remarkable about the time in which Jesus was born and lived is that there were not multiple messianic movements like there had been in previous years. No, between 4 BC and 66 AD, there was only one messianic movement. And it was the Jesus messianic movement. And unlike all the pretenders who came before him, his messianic movement was not violent. But that doesn't mean that Herod wouldn't be violent. Just like Pharaoh, Herod too was afraid. His fear of man was also deep and deadly. In fact, that's what all fear of man is, deep and deadly. Pharaoh let his fear of man govern and guide his decisions. And the Bible's teaching on fear of man is clear. Listen to what Proverbs 29 verse 25 says. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. It'd be a good verse to commit to memory. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. As the book of Exodus and even this chapter unfolds, we see this truth played out. Pharaoh's fear of man leads him to cruelty. Just look at some of the language used in verses 11 through 14 to see how Pharaoh is described as dealing with the people of Israel in response to his fear. Pharaoh sets taskmasters over the people of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. He has the people of Israel oppressed. He makes their lives bitter with hard service. He deals ruthlessly with them and makes them serve as slaves. Those last two phrases are actually repeated for emphasis. Through enslavement, Pharaoh has the people of Israel build for him store cities, which would often house wealth or weapons. In the case of wealth, they would store grain and oil and wine, trading with the other nations. In the case of weapons, they would typically be set on the the borders of the territory that Egypt controlled, so that if war should break out, it would be easy for troops to move quickly to the border cities and be well supplied for battle. These cities were the mark of prosperity and power for Egypt, something which the new Pharaoh wanted to protect, but became increasingly fearful about as the number of Israelites increased. Similarly, the taxes that Herod and the Romans levied on the people of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth were for his massive building projects. Rulers can control a lot of what people or a group of people can do through economic oppression. And both Herod and Pharaoh didn't want to lose control. And all of this sprung from their fear of man. In the case of Pharaoh, he determined that the best way to maintain control over Israel was to make them slaves. Pharaoh's desire to control the people of Israel through slavery reveals his fear of man. And if we're honest with ourselves, this happens in our lives too. Sure, we we don't enslave people in the terms that we perhaps see here in Exodus 1, but we do pursue our own means of control. We want to control the, the information that others have about us because we're fearful of how others might perceive us and what ramifications that might have on our relationship with them. Think about it, you kind of manage your online persona through social media. You give the information you want people to know about you. Fear of man is 
quite simple, and it is allowing our fear or awe of others to govern our decisions and actions and words. People are not meant to have that place in our lives where we're kind of worshiping them or calling for their worship of us. God is meant to have that place in our lives. Our fear and awe of God and His sovereignty should govern our, govern our decisions and actions. Uh, fear of man can, can happen anywhere. It can happen in our workplaces, our, our small groups, our accountability relationships, our homes, and our conversations with our parents or with our friends at school. Be careful if you find yourself using words to guard yourself or to guard your image. It could be that you're doing that to control another person's opinion of you. That could reveal that you, that in your heart, you fear this person. Children, youth, young adults, fear of man is an especially difficult temptation for you. I assume that you want to be liked by your, your friends at school or on your sports teams or, or in other areas you, you interact with them. We, we all want to be liked. Uh, but, but the question is, are you behaving and speaking around your friends as, a, as in such a way as to make them try to like you or to make them like you more? Uh, your friends may invite you to do something that you uh, may know is wrong. And, and the question you think you face is will I do what is wrong and be liked by my friends or, or will I do what is right and suffer the consequences? But that's not really the question you face. The question you really face is this. Will I do what is wrong and be liked by my friends? Or will I do what is right and show that I love God and fear Him more than my friends? Children, youth, Young adults, remember what God's word says about the fear of man. The fear of man lays a snare. Whatever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let me encourage you to talk with your friends or family member, maybe a mature Christian that you know, about how they attempt to fight fear of man in, in their lives. Fear of man often does not stop at merely controlling another person's perception of you. It often moves beyond to seek personal gain. Right? Pharaoh, he didn't merely endeavor to control the people of Israel through slavery. No, he used the control he had over them to bring gain and prosperity to himself and to Egypt. Our attempts to control the perception of, that others have about us often results in the pursuit of personal gain. We want not merely to be liked, but sometimes to be honored. Here's the irony of Pharaoh's enslavement of the people of Israel. Remember that he did it because he was afraid. The irony is that he too was a slave. Pharaoh was a slave. He was a slave to his fear. It determined everything he did and it mastered him. This points to his spiritual slavery. And our fear of man points to our spiritual slavery. All mankind has been enslaved to sin Ever since the first man, Adam, sinned back in Genesis 3, Jesus said that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Now, you may, may scoff at the idea that you can be a slave to sin, but, but honestly reflect within your own mind for a moment. Do you remember how you often return to doing those things that you do not want to do? Remember how you fight so hard and yet feel so weak? 
Remember how you give in and then find yourself disappointed. You feel and know the bitterness of your sin, like the people of Israel felt and knew the bitterness of slavery. You, you feel and know the burden of your sin, like the people of Israel felt the burden of Pharaoh's oppression. Friend, you and everyone else here this morning needs a deliverer from this slavery, just like the people of Israel needed a deliverer. Our fear of man and our other sins reveal that we need to be set free from our slavery to sin, just like the people of Israel needed to be set free from their physical slavery. Pharaoh's fear of man threatened the welfare of the people of Israel, but in the midst of the darkness of Pharaoh's fear of man, we see hope, don't we? Read verse 12. Look at verse 12. But the more, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. That verse is meant to tell us that Pharaoh could not stop God from keeping his promise to prosper his people. All of his planned affliction would serve God's purpose to prosper his people and bring them deliverance. God ordained that his people would be afflicted so that they might grow and see that nothing can hold back his promises. Verse 12 shows us who will be the ultimate victor in the fight that is about to break out between God and Pharaoh. God will win. He will deliver his people. Now let's turn and consider our third point, the preservation of of God's people, the preservation of God's people. And read Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 with me. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, actually 2, 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now in verses 15 to 22, Pharaoh tries to put an end to the fulfillment of God's promises through murder. In verses 15 to 21, we see that Pharaoh first instructed the midwives to kill any sons that were born to the people of Israel. And then in verse 22, we see that he instructed all the Egyptians to be involved in the killing of the sons of Israel. Now, proportionally speaking, very few names are mentioned in the book of Exodus. We're not, given, we're not even given the name of this Pharaoh who plays a central role in the book. But we are given the names of these midwives, these two midwives. And many commentators note that that's probably because of Mo Moses' approval of their actions. 
we're told that the midwives feared God and did not commit infanticide as Pharaoh had commanded. They fear, their fear of God led them to choose life for the sons of Israel. Here were the people of Israel being obedient to God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And here was Pharaoh standing in clear opposition to God's command. And therefore, in opposition to God himself. The life that God created in these mothers, Pharaoh, wanted to snuff out. And Pharaoh's fear of man shifted from controlling the people of Israel and using them for gain to controlling the population. Putting babies to death is nothing less than an attempt to remove the image of God from this earth. It is an offensive display of hatred toward God. We're told that the midwives to whom Pharaoh gave this wicked command feared God. They, unlike Pharaoh, knew that God was to be feared above man. When they did not do as Pharaoh commanded, they stood under the threat of death. They embodied in their fear of God, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When Pharaoh's plot was foiled, he called these women in for questioning. And some have wondered whether or not the midwives lied to Pharaoh. And let me just say up front, very few come down on this issue with great clarity. Um, I'm not sure they lied. In verse 19, they give their reply to Pharaoh. They tell him flatly that the sons were born before they arrived. And that could be a true statement. Frankly, the focus of the text is not on their response to Pharaoh, but their fear of God. And how it showed itself in their disobedience to Pharaoh. The Lord dealt well with the midwives because they feared him above Pharaoh. God did not show them favor for their response to Pharaoh, but rather for their fear of God. Read verse 21 again. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's a really interesting statement. But it's a really, really interesting statement if in fact these women were Hebrew women. They were commissioned by Pharaoh to be agents of death, and yet they were commissioned by God to be those who preserve and give life. They helped the number of Israelites increase. I hope that you remember what we read about the wise men earlier in the service. Herod had plans to use them to locate the one who had been born king of the Jews. His motives were precisely like Pharaoh's motives. As it became evident later, he sought to kill all the Hebrew children in that region. The wise men did not comply with his request to bring him word. Instead, they worshipped the newborn king and obeyed the word of the Lord in their dream, not to return to Herod. Jesus' life was protected and preserved by their actions. And the actions of Mary and Joseph when they fled to Egypt for safety. Turning our minds back to Egypt in Exodus 1, these Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, stand as example to Christians. Uh, they embody what Christians are to do should the government seek to coerce behavior which stands in direct contradiction to God's law. The regular disposition of a Christian is to honor those 
whom the Lord has placed in authority over us. But in the history of the world, there have been occasions upon which, and there will likely be future occasions upon which, Christians have to conscientiously decide to obey God over and against their earthly rulers. Our church's statement of faith articulates this biblical balance well. Here's Article 16. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society and that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the Prince of the Kings of the earth. So we obey those whom the Lord has set in authority over us insofar as we can. But our ultimate allegiance is not to a democracy. It is to the King in heaven. We obey Him and submit our lives to His rule. More generally speaking, Shifra and Pua stand as example to Christians as how their whole lives are to be oriented. Fearing God and entrusting their lives to Him each and every day. And what does it mean to fear God? It means to know how powerful, loving, and holy He is. And it means to live in light of that knowledge. In verse 22, we're told that Pharaoh makes one final attempt to put an end to the births of the sons of Israel. Read verse 22 again. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh, he commissions all of Egypt to be involved with the murder of the sons of Israel. But even this proposition fails. Pharaoh is not going to win this battle, for as we'll see in the next few verses, Hebrew sons continue to be born. And one is even brought right into Pharaoh's own house. What is more, if you were to keep reading the book of Exodus and Numbers, we would see that several years after Pharaoh's wicked decree, this one who is brought into Pharaoh's own house will lead more than 600,000 sons out of Egypt in the victory that is the Exodus. These sons even plunder the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. Many sons were preserved. But the narrative in chapter 2 shifts in order to announce the birth of one son in particular, Moses. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we meet the one who will be the deliverer of God's people. So this is our fourth point, the deliverer of God's people. Read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 now. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. But she, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. 
So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The deliverer has arrived. In these verses, we're introduced to Moses, who God will later use to free his people from slavery in Egypt. The significance of noting that Moses' parents were both from the house of Levi shows us that Moses was a Hebrew through and through. It also looks forward to the qualifications that were necessary to serve as a priest in the tabernacle. We uh, learn later in the scriptures that those of the house of Levi would serve as priests and mediators between God and his people, which is one of the main roles that Moses will, will later take up in the book. But as we've been thinking about Moses, he is born into an amazingly difficult context. And he would not have survived if he were not delivered by Pharaoh's daughter. The threat of death is hanging over his life when he is born. We're told that Moses was hidden for three months until his mother could hide him no longer. The book of Hebrews even tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 that this hiding was an act of faith. As babies grow, so does their volume, the volume of their cry. And so Moses, we're told, was a, a fine child, which means he was at least healthy and probably had a vigorous cry. Uh, this act of hiding Moses in a basket amongst the reeds was a further attempt to continue to hide him from the Egyptians. Moses' sister, probably Miriam, was standing nearby to help watch and care for her brother. According to, the Old, according to Old Testament scholars, the, the word that we see here in verse 3 uh, is probably better translated to ark, referring to Moses' little basket that he's hidden in. Moses, because he's the, the human author of Exodus, probably intends to point yet again to God's providential care for his people. He protected Noah and his family in the ark, and here we see God protecting Moses in this little ark. The irony of this passage is just rich. Moses is put into the river, and the river, of course, is the very place that he's to die if an Egyptian finds him. And yet this is where his mother hides him. His little ark encounters one who is under a royal decree to put him to death. And yet something else happens. In verses 5 to 9, we discover that baby Moses comes into the hands of Pharaoh's own daughter and something amazing happens. Rather than plunging this Hebrew son into the river, she draws him out. Rather than obeying her father's commands, she, like the Hebrew midwives, disobeys. She has pity on Moses. Her heart is nothing like her father's, rather than being hard and severe, we find her to be soft and compassionate. She delivers Moses from the threat of death at the very place he is to die. Ironic, isn't it, that the one who will be the deliverer of Israel must first be delivered. We're told in verse 4 that Moses' sister was standing nearby to see what would be done to her brother. She sees this wonderful, compassionate response from Pharaoh's daughter, and then she does something unthinkable. She, a slave, speaks to a member of the royal family. 
As a reader, you almost wonder if at this point Pharaoh's daughter is going to remember Pharaoh's command. She's going to look at this Hebrew girl and realize that she's holding her father's enemy and change her mind. And instead, she agrees to this little girl's suggestion and sends her to find a nurse for this newborn son of Israel. In a remarkable turn of events, the mother who was seeking to hide her son from the Egyptians no longer has to. She's given a royal commission to keep her son, to care for him, to raise him, and to do all of this under royal protection and pay. We can't help but see God's sovereign hand in working to protect and preserve his chosen servant, Moses. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And when we read verse 10, we joyfully discover that Moses survived the threat of death. Read that verse again, verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. When Moses was weaned, his biological mother brought him to his adoptive mother. Not only in verse 10 are we told that Moses survives Pharaoh's threat of death, but we're also told that he's given a name. Now, naming in the scriptures is significant. The names given to persons in the scriptures often describe and foreshadow their character and their future. In the scriptures, the act of naming itself, the giving of the name, often denotes belonging. Because Moses belongs to Pharaoh's daughter by virtue of her finding him and delivering him from death, she has the right to name him. And she named him Moses, which means to draw out. She named him that because we're told she drew him out of the water. God would later use Moses to do what? To draw his people out of Egypt. Out of slavery in Egypt. And where do they go through? Water. To do it. You can't help but see God pointing out his work of saving this son of Israel in his name. And you can't help but see God pointing forward to the work that he would do through this son and his son, Jesus, in the future. Let's just step back for a moment and consider the grand picture that's presented to us here. God is bigger than any man on the face of the earth, and he always has been. You need not fear man. No man can thwart God's purposes. No one can stop his promises. God preserved the sons of Israel until the fullness of time had come. When the right time had come, when they had spent those 400 years of affliction that God promised, he sent Moses, his deliverer, to the people of Israel to free them from slavery and bondage. In the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we learn that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. In thwarting Pharaoh's plot to kill the sons of Israel, God kept His promise of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where He promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. In thwarting Pharaoh's plot to kill the sons of Israel, God 
kept his promises of Genesis chapter 12 and 15 when he promised Abraham that his offspring would bless many nations. Like Moses, Jesus was born into a context where there was a mad ruler, Herod, who sought to kill all the sons of Israel who were born in Bethlehem. And where, ironically, did Joseph and Mary flee? To Egypt. Eventually, like Israel, God would call his son out of Egypt, like Moses brought Israel out of Egypt. But God did not call his son Jesus out of Egypt to preserve him from death, but to put him to death. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find that on page 974. Galatians chapter 4. And, and consider what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In verse 7, Paul says that those who believe in his son Jesus are no longer slaves, but sons. And if you're here this morning and you, you haven't begun to follow Jesus, then friend, this is what we desperately want you to hear this Christmas. You wouldn't know it from all of the decorations and lights and joy-filled music. But Christmas, in part, is about being set free from slavery to sin. It's about being delivered from the chains of sin and death. And I want you to know this morning that you can have true joy this Christmas. You can have a joy that will not fade away as the season comes to an end. As a Christian, I want you to know that you don't have to be a slave anymore. But you can be a son of God. A son that God will preserve for all eternity because he did not preserve and spare his own son. You see, friend, God created us. Created us to love him, to honor him, and to serve him. But we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God and decided to live our own way. And in our sin, we have become slaves to sin. We think we can master it, but in fact, it only masters us. And because of our sin, we all stand in danger of facing God's just and eternal wrath in hell. But in love, God sent forth His Son, Jesus. Jesus being Fully man and fully God lived the life that we have not lived. He lived the perfect life of obedience to God. He died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turned from their sins and put their faith in Him. And three days later, just as God promised, God raised Jesus from the dead. In Jesus' resurrection, we have proof that his death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. In other words, through Jesus' death, we know that he is God's final deliverer. 
And now God calls all of us through repentance and faith to release our chains of slavery and to come in to being his sons and daughters. To be welcomed into his house. Friend, let me encourage you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't live as a slave any longer. Live as a son or daughter of the Most High King. Christian, rejoice. Rejoice that you are an adopted son and daughter of God. You are no longer a slave to sin. And God's promised you that He will preserve you and protect you and carry you to the end. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says that we're heirs through God. The scripture tells us that we will reign with Christ for all eternity. We will pass through death, should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry, but only to enter into eternity to reign with Christ. Until Christ calls us home or comes again, we need to treasure all of these things in our hearts. And this is where I want us to conclude. In this Christmas season, and in every season, we need to treasure the truth that our God keeps His promises. He promised that He would send a deliverer to defeat the serpent, and He has in Jesus Christ. In this Christmas season, and in every season, we need to know that affliction may come, but that God's determination to see His people safely home to heaven will not be thwarted. In this Christmas season and in every season, we need to remember that Jesus Christ was born to deliver us from the chains of sin and death. And in this Christmas season and in every season, we need to look forward to His return, to His next advent, where His grand deliverance will be fully and finally complete. Praise God. Let's pray together.